Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, Mark Boundy, who is CEO of Boundy Consulting. He helps companies to grow faster, better, and more profitably by exposing and closing their biggest blind spot, what their real value is to their customer. Mark, welcome. Marcus, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I've been really looking forward to this. I know you and I agree on a lot of things, but I'm looking forward to a bit of a tussle over the nuance of things and really getting to the root cause. So let's first start with 60 seconds on your history before we dig into this um, issue around the blind spot around value. Okay. Well, I started my first big boy job out of college was at a company called W.L. Gore & Associates, who's maniacal about understanding customer value. The question, what's the value, meant what unpacked to a whole conversation about what is the customer's business, how do they make their money, what's going to make them more money, how can we help them make more money using our stuff, and how much is that worth to them? So that one question, what's the value, really began was a journey into understanding the customer's business and the customer's outcomes. So I took that bias through a variety of different jobs, uh, telecommunications equipment, telecommunications services, financial services, selling money, uh, selling sales training. And every single time I found that over and over, businesses, companies, salespeople don't understand value anything like that way, the way that Gore did in my first big boy job. So I was hopelessly damaged or hopelessly equipped from that first job of understanding customer value. So I preach value to the world now. Well, that that's a fantastic grounding and one that every salesperson absolutely should have. So let's start with what's wrong with the way we train salespeople. Because I know you've got a great pedigree in that space. Yeah, um, I was with I was with the oldest, largest, biggest B2B sales training organization in the world. Uh, and I love their stuff and I use their stuff and always have and probably always will. But here's the thing. Customer perceived value was 10% of the real estate on that company's sales tool. So you customer value appeared on 10% of the sheet. Customer value is 10.6% of the timed agenda on a two-day training course. Wow. Customer value is 10% of the sales coaching. Customer value is maybe 3 to 5% of the metrics that that company tells its clients to use to measure sales performance. That might be okay until you realize that customer value is what moves 95% of the customer decision. And I only say 95%, not knowing what the other 5% is. I just hate absolutes. So it stands to reason that if value is 10% of your coaching and training emphasis, but it's 90% of what 95% of what moves the customer decision, you're going to underperform. And over and over, uh, during the global meetings, there'd be 250 of us sales consultants like myself. And we'd all say, yeah, the customer just doesn't get the wins and results. They always, the salespeople always whiff on that. That is like, it's in the, right in the middle of the sheet and it's always crap. So we call it a jelly donut, right? Because the middle of it is full of worthless fluff. 
So I decided let's turn that on its head. So my practice is let's get your salespeople really good at understanding value, really precise about defining it. And the rest of the methodology falls into place when you get good at value. And the rest of the methodology falls like a house of cards if you aren't good at value. Okay, so this then speaks to a much broader issue, which is that the money behind the organization and how that drives leadership and management behavior, thinking, measurement, compensation, recruitment, management behavior, training, coaching, is all driven by what sounds like a focus on the wrong end of the problem. Completely. If you understand your customer's business, understand their needs, understand their world, understand the outcomes that they are trying to achieve, and then turn your product or service into the way to achieve their outcomes, now you're growing your customer business using your stuff, not selling your stuff. And the servant salesperson, the consultative salesperson who's focusing on the customer's business and growing the customer's business is a rare bird, but is the highly valued bird. And we talk about doing it, but we never do it. And I'm going to keep rambling because once, you're, once your salespeople know that and can bring that information back to the hive, now your product training becomes not about features and benefits and speeds and feeds. It becomes about customer outcomes. These are the outcomes that we solve. In your product training, onboarding that new salesperson, your content becomes about outcomes. And these are the outcomes that our features, our differentiation is the best in the world at delivering. So now your content is training customers to expect outcomes that you're the best in the world at delivering. So when the customer self-informs, they ask every one of your competitors for those outcomes too. And so your product training, your compensation, or your compensation based on value pricing, your product roadmap, your innovation plan, because now your innovators understand the customer's business, they think of better features cheaper. This then fundamentally points to a really simple concept, which is simply understanding the customer's buying journey and where they are in their business at this moment. I think the mistake people make is as vendors, they try and get the customer to meet them where they want them rather than where they actually are. And as a result of that, there is a massive disconnect. And so they're not timely, they're not relevant, and they certainly are not offering any value. And yeah. the training is all fixated on tech tactics and technique. That's the least important part of a salesperson's skill set. Absolutely. Think about the disconnect this way, right? As the selling organization, we have a sales funnel or a sales pipeline. The customer has a journey which looks like uh, the sideways eight, an infinity loop. And our sales funnel is two thirds, maybe three quarters of the left hand part of that loop. It's when the customer decides they need something, figures out what it is, evaluates alternatives, chooses something, and then signs a deal. That's two thirds of the left hand loop. But the customer's journey is we install it, we implement it, we get good at using it, we figure out how, we work out the kinks, we decide we love it, and we figure out where else we can use or what else we need from that vendor. 
And so that customer journey, think of the split screen on the day that the deal is signed. And on one screen is in the sales floor where people are high-fiving and ringing bells or doing whatever celebration. And on the other screen is the customer who's just suddenly broken out in a cold sweat because this is the moment they became accountable for a decision. I, Think I, about I, that I split screen, right? Think about that split screen and how broken we have become in thinking about us and ourselves. Well, you've touched on something really important here, which is the selfishness of sellers and vendors, which is, again, a byproduct of how we are funded and how we are led and how we are managed and how we are measured and how we're compensated. Oh, my and gosh. All of that needs to be torn up, root and branch. And we need to start by putting the customer at the heart. And in fact, I think there's, there, there are three parts to this which are really critical. The customer, no question your employees as well. Because again, if I look at the turnover, the burnout, the mental health issues, the stress, the number of salespeople who are missing quota at the moment. I mean, the a report that I heard about last week uh, or a couple of weeks ago, 85% of account executives are not even hitting 75% of quota and only 3% of sales teams worldwide are hitting their quota today. Now, that is a damning travesty on our profession and our leadership. Yeah, you know, and I'm well aware that correlation is not causation, but you said 3%. There's another 3%. Uh, Gartner found that only 3% of salespeople are considered trusted advisors by their customers. Uh, Absolutely. Well, you've got to be trusted, trustworthy, and offer advice not just show up with a market stall and try and peddle some more stuff because you want to hit quota. Yeah, 15% are trusted, 3% are trusted, and they know you're, and, and feel like you know their business. And so think about how low the bar is for salespeople. <laughs> you don't have to be, you don't have to be top 20%. If you're top 25, you know, if you're, if you're just get out of the bottom 85%, you're better than so many salespeople. If you're, it's, it's, it doesn't take much to be in the top 3% of salespeople. And that's that also been... The, the bar is so low. I'm sorry, you know. Well, no, no, no. You, you've made a really valid point because I've spent a lot of time coaching top performers and you know, top 3 percenters. And what's baffled me is very often just how uninformed they are about their customer. What they're good at is making sure all the moving parts come together. Uh, but they, the, the lack of understanding defies belief very often. And yeah. the, the lack of big picture thinking as well, because they don't see themselves as part of an ecosystem. More often than not, people see themselves as offering a point solution, and uh, they're very transactional. Now, I learned from Chris Dunham, who was uh, Zig Ziglar's bag carrier for 35 years, And he said that when he prospects, he prospects for a customer who's going to be a customer in 5, 10, 15 years' time. And that shift in thinking is incredible. It's very subtle um, in terms of how you approach a prospecting call. Yeah. Um, But it feels different when you're on the receiving end because the customer is at the heart of what you're doing, not your quota. Well, think about this. As, As a CEO, as a product, former product manager, I know that 
it's almost impossible to price something so high that the first year or the first order with a customer is profitable. The cost of sales, the cost of turn up, the cost of all of the startup costs, it's almost impossible to charge a customer all of your costs of initiation. So that first year profitability with a customer is limited to negative. You have to find customers that are going that are likely to renew because otherwise you're going to be on this unprofitable churn trap. So he's absolutely right. You have to look for those customers that are going to be there for years and years and years so that you can get to the profitable part of the cycle with them. Well, there is another angle. I mean, historically, sales has been treated as a numbers game. It's expensive brute force. And people, if you want to double your sales, you double your headcount, double your spam rate, double your dials, double your demos, double your proposals. But that's just you know, doubling down on stupid. And the, the problem is that the main way people go to market is there's 10,000 people, call them all and call them many times. And some of them, uh, will pick up and then try and pitch anyone with a pulse. The technology is out there now so that you don't have to do that. And the smarter organizations that I'm working with are really rethinking the way they go to market. They're thinking about their structure. They're outsourcing and arbitraging a lot of the dead time activity to specialists who've got the scale and the efficiency in the tech stack to be able to do that. So when your salespeople are in prospecting mode. They're talking to five people an hour instead of maybe two a day. Now, that, that's a huge uplift. And it allows you to then have choice because now you've got pipeline with choice in it because there's enough in there for you to be able to walk away from bad business or the wrong business. I'm going to challenge, I don't, I don't know exactly how you help your clients, but if a listener out there wants to mindlessly splinter the, the and, and subdivide the entire sales function, be very careful. Because every time you divide that interface, that customer interface, you're created a crack for stuff to fall through. So it's okay to have SDR go to BDR, go to inside sales, go to outside sales, go to the demo specialist, go to the, you know, the, the sales engineer, go to the, and go to the, uh, account manager and customer success. But every time you transition, something could get lost. And as sales leaders, we so often just assume that nothing, that our processes were so perfect that nothing's going to fall through. The idea of value and the definition of value. So I, I get people very uh, focused on the definition of value. Remember, customers don't buy your product or service. They buy their own outcomes. So value has to be about the customer outcome. And so anybody who is who skipped, if something falls through the crack so that the person your customer is talking to now doesn't understand the customer, their world, and the outcomes they are looking for and the outcomes they should be starting to aspire to, right? You're allowed to introduce the customer to new outcomes they didn't realize they wanted. Mm -hmm. But if anybody loses sight of customer outcomes, you've lost something with that customer and the customer journey is the poorer for it. Okay, so let's really delve into how do we establish value? 
How does a vendor, or in fact, let's take it right down to the basics, because let's assume that what's happening in 94% of cases is your manager can't or is ill-equipped to help you. So you as a seller are going to have to go out and try and understand where you can derive and demonstrate value to your customer. Take us through sort of room 101 on how to do this. Can I take you through what we do now? I call it the cycle of mediocrity. And then I'll tell you how to the cycle of mediocrity. There's overwhelming research from many different shops. And I'm going to take you through the cycle of mediocrity. Step one. Well, it's a cycle. So I'm going to start at an arbitrary point and call it step one. <laughs> is that customer believes that salespeople are merely the good salespeople are adequate. They answer the questions that you ask, but they don't go beyond that. They don't understand your business well enough to do anything besides just go fetch the answers that you've asked. As a result, customers think salespeople are or don't prefer salespeople as the information source. In 2018, uh, CSO Insights in their buyer, uh, in, uh, buyer survey said that salespeople ranked number nine out of 10 possible information sources, common information sources. So salespeople ranked just ahead of the local association rubber chicken lunch. <laughs> and that's all. And uh, remember, we said that customers say only 3% of salespeople are trusted advisors. Only 15% are trusted at all. So they don't use salespeople, which means, and we've all heard that customers self-inform. Well, the customers self-inform using kind of fluff information that's out there on the internet. So they under-inform. If they have not purchased this product or service before, their vision of the future is very superficial and underwhelming and probably never had the ROI that it's going to ultimately take for executives to approve it. But that's their vision for the future. And so now they go out to customers or to, uh, excuse me, now those uh, customers with that simplified, underwhelming vision of the future, now they go out and call salespeople. The salespeople are trained to ask the, those folks, what's your pain point? And customers are happy to oblige them, but they're only able to articulate the pain points that they self-informed for themselves in that underwhelming vision. So salespeople seek- That's really get, interesting. Right? Sales seek to get a perfect understanding of the customer's imperfect self-image uh, of the future. And so the three sales teams that are best at getting a perfect vision of the customer's imperfect vision become the finalists. The customer then says, man, I got three proposals on my desk with three different logos on the front of the proposal, but it's the same proposal inside. That's because those salespeople were all asking the same pain point questions, weren't, didn't understand the customer's world well enough to open the customer's eyes to new vistas, to new possibilities, to new outcomes. They were all selling the same set of outcomes that the customer had already articulated to them. And so one of two things happened typically. 50% of the time, you know, between 40 and 60%, depending on whose research you, you believe, no decision wins. 
And that's because the customer's vision of the future didn't have enough ROI, didn't have enough value in the first place. And so when you give them a perfect delivery on that imperfect vision, it didn't have enough value to invest in. So no decision wins. And the other half of the time, well, I've got three proposals on my desk that are identical. Price is going to win. I don't know which death is worse. No decision or getting ground on price until it's unprofitable with a customer who doesn't necessarily appreciate what you really do. But the customer does that and they walk away thinking, and here's where the circle completes, those salespeople were pretty unimpressive. Can I just stop you there? Yeah, that's. I've just okay. gone through the cycle, so yes. So when you're listening to this, please go back and listen to that again and mind map the steps that Mark's referred to uh, so that you're clear about it, because that is the grim reality. What's really interesting, corporate visions research on this suggests that about 10.6% of buying cycles end up in an RFP, which is what Mark has just described. The average win rate there is one in four. That means that out of 100 sales cycles, you will win 2.6% of those you pursue. Now, if, just, yeah, if that, yes, if that RFP just came in over the transom, absolutely. Now, just let that sink in for a minute. If you are running your business on the basis of the RFP being the heart of it, imagine the potential that's being left behind. That yeah. 40 to 60% status quo winning, okay, that's real. My anecdotal research from speaking to clients and prospects and people uh, on interview is 60% is actually very close to uh, the real world, certainly in the, the circles I live in. Now, then you've got this other 29.4% and that 29.6%, uh, sorry, that are as Mark is about to describe. And these are people who turn up and challenge the status quo. They destabilize your current preferences. They are able to help you to articulate the internal business case in order to ensure that you have a really strong grounding. And if they need to throw you under the bus, they can because they've done their job right. They've done their research. And that you've created enough points of difference between you and all the others because you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. And at the end of it, you allay that anticipated regret and blame, uh, which is the future buyer's remorse that Mark uh, referred to, that kicks in the moment they become accountable, the moment they put ink on contract and it's a, a green light. That's when the shit really hits the fan internally, because that's when the big part of their journey begins. Now, their journey began months or even years before when all these different centers of dissatisfaction started kicking off and complaining. And they were throwing these problems over the wall to procurement and management and saying, we need fixes, and none of them have worked. And this is where having that business acumen, understanding the moving parts, being able to deal, um, see uh, your customer's world as a bunch of complex, wicked problems where the rules change, stakeholders differ, the objectives change over time. There are no perfect solutions and you're going to get it wrong regularly. And as long as it's not fatal, keep experimenting. Yeah. Okay. So Mark, 
over to you. So that's the foundation. No, you're absolutely right. And I don't know if I've ever met a sales manager who didn't say, get out in front of the RFP. And you're right, but what do you do in front of the RFP? How do you behave in front of the RFP is the trick. So that's- Uh, Sorry, can you define what you mean by in front of? Yeah, get engaged with the customer and shape their decision. Wouldn't it be great if they wrote their RFP around our specification? Okay, got it. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that. You you want to shape the RFP. So get, get in with the customer. Well, what do you do? How, now that customers don't trust you, how do you add value? And and you mentioned have a perspective and sh- and shape their opinion, uh, shake their faith in their decision making process, and and open new vistas for them. the The challenger research is you know the the research from the challenger is kind of valid, but at this big shop we actually had clients who ran that personality profile on all of their tech on all of their sales forces. And the challenger research tested only high performers and average performers because they didn't have the money or whatever. They said that the low performers don't matter. Well, when you run that that same personality profile on an entire sales force, you find that indeed these clients found that half of their high performers were these challenger personality type, but they also found that half of their low performers were the challenger type. So the difference between those two, between a challenger who shapes the customer's opinion and is a valued consultant and the challenger who is an annoying know-it-all who drives customers away is credibility, is genuinely, is the business acumen to understand your customer's business, to have the point of view that you are not an annoying know-it-all, you're adding value to the customer's buying decision. And that takes empathy for the customers, not just the emotional empathy, but a true understanding of the customer's world, the customer's business, how they make their money and how you can help them make more. Because it is not enough to just throw out a random thing about the customer's business that they didn't know themselves. It has to be, here's the problem I know what your real problem is. And based on my experience, and here's here's what I know about your business, and here's why I think this is true for you. I just want to pick up on one thing, and it, it is a pushback. You've mentioned money several times, and absolutely that is really important. And every business depends on that. But what I'm also seeing increasingly is as the generational shift is happening, from fusty old buggers like you and I to the next generation, purpose is really key. And as you start to build more collaborative organizations and you get away from the command and control, which is more frequent within millennial and Gen Z management and leadership, I think money is going to become, it's still going to be integral, but I'm seeing purpose uh, really coming into play, employee engagement really being very important, ensuring that uh, you become an employer of choice, so a destination employer. Yeah, and a lot of people have missions and purposes that are, they have some social value too. So as a salesperson, make sure you look for that too and find out what actually drives the customer at an individual level and go beyond just the business because that's where you get the real emotional tie-in. 
Boy, Marcus, thank you. You're, you're right. And I glossed over that. And thanks for stopping us on that very important point. Uh, they intersect. We complain about younger generations wanting jobs with meaning. Well, old fusty old farts like us entered our work lives wanting job with meaning. We just didn't have the courage to never compromise on it. Yeah. Right. The younger generation has the courage to not give up on that, to not allow their soul to be crushed. And they have a, a demographic tailwind allowing them to get away with that, right? 65-year-olds, I'm using U.S. demographics, but they aren't that much different around the world. 65-year-olds are aging out and retiring. 55-year-olds are opting out because they did well enough on the stock market and the hassle just isn't worth it anymore. So 55-year-olds are aging out. So that's the baby boom gone. And productivity has been steadily increasing and productivity increase is the, is the driver of job growth. So there are jobs growing and employees leaving, which means for the first time in several generations, probably longer than our grandparents have been alive, there's a job market that is the employee in the employee's favor. It's a seller's market for labor, not a buyer's market. And so now if you want your organization, your corporation to continue to survive, to be able to be that employer of choice, yeah, you you have to do that, but they intersect. Well, to build on this, because this is re really very interesting and very exciting too, as a leader, as a manager, if you are not paying really close attention to what you're being told by the next couple of generations, you are missing out. I'm speaking from personal uh, experience here. I spend a lot of time working with people with very fat brains. These are uh, probably in the early 20s to late 30s. They've still got a lot of white matter and their brains are still forming incredible connections. And um, having uh, their input gives a fresh perspective. But I think it's also really important to look at the importance of building very diverse sales operations or revenue operations. You need uh, different genders, orientations, ethnicity, uh, religious backgrounds. You need people with different uh, coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And you can spread the load through strategic alliances and partnerships, through mastermind groups, through interdepartmental interaction. And it's really important to get all these different perspectives and uh, for salespeople to be involved in those conversations with all the different moving parts internally, as well as within the customer's business, to see who else is affected directly and indirectly by the decisions that you're selling, um, to the solutions that you're selling. Yeah, you know, uh, I was going to try to get to that, but you backed into my point. So I believe, and, and I'm going to put in a shameless plug for my book. Uh, Go ahead. Is Radical Value by Mark Boundy. Go ahead and look it up on Amazon. And I take the I, I take the position that over the course of the last 30 years, we have subdivided the customer interface into more mm. and more and more jobs and roles. Yeah, and to the point where now there are companies that have such a poor, some corners of a company have such a poor view to the real customer that they've created this stupid band-aid called the internal customer. 
internal customers are a band-aid for the fact that you have subdivided and splintered your company so finely that nobody has a window that there's people without a porthole to the to the customer so i take the view that the culture that connects everybody's role in the company everybody in the company understands how their role connects to a customer outcome so that's a fine purpose to lead your organization to. We live for our customers and these are the outcomes that we provide. That's beautiful. As a leader, right? There's all kinds of leadership texts that talk about how to lead. And I don't minimize those because I'm not good at that personally, but I want to advocate to make that how to lead easier by telling your organization where to lead towards the customer value, towards the customer's business. We live our lives in our organization in our customer's mind. Nothing matters except what's going on in our customer's mind. All the metrics that we have inside on efficiency and productivity are of secondary importance to what's going on in our customer's mind. Think about this if you're a customer leader, right? The purpose of your business, according to Peter Drucker, is to find and create a customer. Nice, useful, pithy. And the way you find and keep a customer is to generate more customer value than it costs you to deliver. So in my book, I start chapter one with the purpose of every organization is to deliver more customer value than it costs you to deliver. Now, let's look at your corporate metrics. (laughs) If, if, If the purpose of your company is all about value. Let's take a look at your metrics and where does value appear in any of them? Crickets, right? Mm-hmm. And oh, people will say, oh, but I've got customer satisfaction measures. Well, okay. That's crap. That's right? people just saying, yeah, we'll give them a seven. Right? And, and even if it were accurate, that measurement is only taken from customers that successfully made it through the mediocrity cycle. And the 1% or the 2% who actually bloody responded. Yeah. The, the so, 98% are quietly seething. You, you, are you measuring the satisfaction of the customers that you should have won that were a perfect fit, that you knew were a perfect fit, but you sent the wrong kind of challenger in who was an annoying know-it-all and alienated them? Or do you measure customer satisfaction on that? You had value, but you could have had value, but you didn't. And you don't, it doesn't appear in any of your metrics. And so you don't measure it and you don't know why you failed. It's the survivor bias, right? You're only measuring satisfaction on the survivors of the people who survived your sales process and survived survey fatigue. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I, I always maintain that the customers become this long forgotten afterthought at the end of a long chain of abuse. Yeah, we used to say customers are a great thing as long as they're kept well downwind. (laughs) It's horrifying. I'm genuinely livid that um, our really genuinely noble profession has been taken down this road. And it, it does come back down to the money behind the organizations very often because they're driving a short-term perspective and they're looking at an exit. They're looking at how quickly they can get out and their leadership is incentivized to do that too. I think you're right 
But, but I'm going I'm going to come 20% to their defense and say they don't know any better. They learned those crap metrics from an old guy who learned them from a dead guy and they don't know any better. They they just learned the metrics in business school and they don't they don't none of the metrics ever took into account that value is the purpose for your business and so nobody developed metrics and it's hard to measure anyway so they don't know any better. I'll grant you that that your five biggest competitors fear apathy, ignorance, denial, and ego, actually the sixth one, and the status quo. And ignorance is the most forgivable. You just don't know what you don't know. But when you do, you better bloody well do something about it. Um, And this is part of the problem, because doing it is difficult work. And most people do not have the courage to do difficult work. One of my favorite books of all time is Keith Cunningham's book, The Road Less Stupid. And he makes a really brilliant point, which is that every week, minimum 45 minutes, you, a legal pad and a pen, no interruptions and a question. And that's it. And you've got to start thinking. Salespeople have to be introspective. You've got to review, reflect. You've got to challenge. You've got to ask yourself damn better questions. And what really pisses me off is the stuff that gets taught to salespeople is all the wrong stuff. I give a fuck about your product. I I really do. I mean, one CRM is just another database dressed up with a different user interface uh, to another. I really don't care how long you've been in business, who your investors are. I don't care that you've been selling to PricewaterhouseCoopers and uh, Bank of America when I'm a mom and pop outfit outside of Backwater, Arkansas, and I've got trouble because I can't make payroll in two months. Help me out my sh- the, the shit that I've dug myself into. Now, the reality is that salespeople need to learn how to listen. They need to learn how to question. They really need to learn some empathy. They need to understand how businesses work. And what you're doing, you know, part of this splintering that Mark was talking about is you're trying to give the most difficult job to the most inexperienced people. I mean, who on earth would, in in what other field would you give open heart surgery to someone who's never lifted a scalpel before? But now what do you do? You give someone two weeks worth of training on the product and what passes for sales training, and then tell them you are one, congratulations. Now they go off and dial for a living. And then they get beaten up. And only a fraction of them survive. And you see this where they hire 10 in the hope that three survive a year and one makes it to the second year. What a waste. I mean, and, all of that's a travesty. And, and the one that survives didn't, I mean, survived on pluck and grim determination, yeah. not on being an expert in the customer's business. Absolutely. The way you, the way you succeed in, in this subdivided world is not by doing the right things. It's by doing the wrong things more efficiently. We're going to get through the mediocrity cycle more rapidly and more efficiently. Yeah, it's got a 4% close rate, but if we do it really fast, we'll make more sales. Let's forget about that 50 or 60% no decision rate. Let's just get through the crap really fast and really efficiently. So the the difference between efficiency and effectiveness. I'm a big advocate of both, but I take a dim view of doing one at the because that's what you know how to do. Well, th- this again raises some really interesting questions because there are three massive problems that I'm seeing in the sales world at the moment. And they 
are all interdependent and they feed into this spiral of violence. One is that there is this regular cannibalization of future pipeline to make this quarter's quota. <laughs> and that creates a massive tariff. And in the end, it drives churn. And that's problematic. That then fuels um, the emphasis on current pipeline instead of nurturing future pipeline. And as a result, what you end up with is most salespeople are failing to hit quota. Why are you hiring more salespeople instead of helping your existing people actually achieve or overachieve against target? And then why is it that we um, see virtually every sales organization spend most of their money in marketing and sales on their cold market instead of working out how to sell hot? It just doesn't make any sense. Because mm. if, if I'm introduced to someone by someone I'm intimate with in business and I've worked with and I trust, 100% chance of a meeting. And if they turn up for that meeting and both, both of us, both sides feel that there's a good fit, there's a 70 to 90% chance I'll buy now. Yeah. But cold, there's maybe one in 20. You know, I went through those three and there's something we haven't talked about. And that is, once you sell the value and know the value, you can price the value. Go um, right? We salespeople are knee-jerk discounters. So many, I should say so many salespeople are, are knee-jerk discounters, right? We're going to discount to bring the deal into this quarter. Now, oh yeah, I could I I'm looking at your face and you I just heard the hiss. And those of you who aren't watching this, like I have the same, I have the same gut reaction. This first job I have where we were maniacal about value, I could not get anybody to produce a prototype to sign off on the simplest drawing change to do anything to like take a message for me from a customer who would not pay 20% price premium. And I was in wire and cable business. So <laughs> I could not, right? So talk about a commodity. And my biggest customer, I was 10 times the price of the competitor. Yeah. Because we understood our value. So, and remember that every dollar you discount is a profit dollar. Yeah. VCs, investors, every dollar your salespeople discount to bring that deal into this quarter was a profit dollar. For life. And your flip of that company, if you're a flip in that company, working up to sale, that dollar that you just gave up is worth how many dollars in enterprise value? Because it's a, it's a profit dollar. It's not a revenue dollar. It's a profit dollar. And it's lifetime because trying and to get it, them up from there. And what, yes, once you've trained your customers, oh, this is one of those companies that discounts at the end of every quarter. And so now you've created a cycle. Every one of your customers knows that you're a discount whore and yeah. they're just going to wait for your, they're going to wait for you to call. And then they're going to say, well, you know, the, uh, I'm going to have to sign it next Tuesday in the beginning of the month, but you're going to give me that same price. We yeah. both know it. And well, what's right. So now you get neither. You don't even get the sale at the end of this month. You just hoard it out into the beginning of next quarter. And what you've done is you've cannibalized the pipeline from the future. So again, many of you will have heard this before. If you have to make up 200 grand, your monthly recurring revenue is 6K, 
Um, that means you have to take 36 full life cycle sales from next quarter. You discount by 30%, that takes it to 48. Now, when you look at the tariff in terms of just- it, it goes to 48 if you're 100% profit margin. Yeah. It goes to like 150, right? I used to have somebody, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I had a guy who said, you know, the good news is that if you discount and try to make it up on volume, the percentage increase in volume you need it's only a single digit. The bad news is that single digit is infinity. <laughs> well, if you make 30% margin, gross margin, and you discount by 10%, you need to double your sale the next time in terms of the overall value yeah. to stand still. There is a cure. For every dollar your salesperson discounts, remove it from his basic salary or her. Thank you. Funnily yeah. enough, you will stop discounting pretty damn quick. Yeah. And I talked to the head of CSO Insights, who's no longer with the firm. He sold it out to the Miller Hyman Group. And for 15 years, he had uh, one of his standard questions in his annual recurring question was asking sales leaders, is any portion of your sales comp plan based on deal profitability? Then he said, for those 15 years, ending about eight or 10 years ago, but for those 15 years prior to that, about 25% of, co of companies that he'd surveyed had any portion, any portion of their comp plan tied to profitability. So but now, now let me ask you as a sales leader, if you lead the only department in your company who is paid not to care about the profitability and longevity of your company, why is it you're complaining about not having a seat at the leadership table? You've been whining about not getting a seat at the big boy table, but you lead the only department that doesn't care about profitability. Why are you surprised? Well, this I think is a function of the economic model. Um, certainly within tech, there are, uh, I saw a, a survey earlier this year, the top 100 SaaS companies make a median profit margin of 0%. Now, you can do that if you're going after growth and money is cheap and blah, 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 blah. But when that bubble bursts, there's going to be an enormous amount of fallout. And there are going to be a lot of customers that will be suffering. So now is the time. If you are the founder or owner or leader of a, a business, Make sure that you're building really strong foundations and double down on customer retention, on customer satisfaction, and drive the value. Make sure that you are partnering with your customers because when the crash does come, you'll survive and the rest won't. And then it's going to be relatively easy pickings. But the challenge is the, the seduction of the, the rapid growth and the myth of the unicorn. You know, yeah, unicorns are 3%. The other 97%, 80% and die on their ass and the founders lose their shirt. So don't, don't think for a second you're going to go out there and be the unicorn. Chances are you're not. And the unicorn probably understands their value and prices yeah. it because they're profitable. I have always had the experience of being the highest price, whatever it was I was selling, whether I've sold cable at a price premium, I've sold telecom gear at a price premium, I've sold money at a price premium. Yep. 
I was a commercial real estate lender. So I sold money at a price premium. Tell me, tell me a more commodity commodity than money. It's designed to be, it's intended to be a commodity and it can be sold at a price premium. Go to two petrol stations across the street from one another and you will see one of them has a significantly higher price for petrol, for gasoline than the other. And why is the high priced one still in business? So you cannot convince me. It is impossible to convince me that there is a commodity that cannot be differentiated. I worked with an investment bank and we doubled their sales three years in a row, 2007, 2008, 2009. And they did really well selling electrons on a screen where everyone else was either using Reuters or the other one, Bloomberg. And the prices were on the terminal. So why were they always the top uh, three, the most expensive on of these electrons on a screen? How did they manage to double throughout the recession? Because they added value. They understood their value. And it wasn't that they were the cheapest because no one buys on price unless the salesperson is really, really shit. That's the reason they buy on price because you take them there. Yeah, I completely agree. One of the loop that gets closed when you understand your customer value is you can price value. And even as that high price competitor, I never had to worry about bringing a deal in this into this quarter. If you're selling enough value, you're making your numbers. And I was able to push back on managers, you know, after leaving that company where it was no longer religion and there, there was an element of let's bring this deal in, I could push back on managers to say, look, I'm at 150% because I've sold value. If we bring this one in, the only possible thing is dropping price and I'm paid on profitability and you're paid on profitability. Is this really what we want to do? Or can you, can you live with more money next week? Well, and the answer, I, I was lucky enough to have good managers so that the answer was always, yeah, let's just do it next week. Well, th- this is really interesting because salespeople like you, I've worked with a lot of them. I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was working with one guy, helped him go from 25% of quota to 220% in under a year. And his bosses kept hammering him saying, you got to bring these deals forward. And he said, no. And they gave him a whole load of grief. Uh, In the end, he was proven right, clearly, because he's consistently been at 220% a quota or above. And he's always profitable and he's always got pipeline. He's always got choice and he never discounts. He now has a team and he's never letting them discount either. So they're the one team in the entire organization that consistently everyone hits quota. They never pillage uh, pipeline And they've got a referral base because people trust them. Yeah. And so let's maybe close the loop with the story of the new puppy salesperson who's asked, go go follow this salesperson and do what they do. The high-performing salesperson. And that youngster, that newbie, watches that person and hasn't been told which parts of that seniors persons are just their personal style and which parts are the ones that really move the needle. (laughs) And there is one that looks like personal style, but it's really exactly what moves the needle. When a salesperson says, you know, here's, here's what we do and here's how it affects you. 
tell me, Mr. Customer, how much are you spending on that a year? How much is that worth to you? And the new salesperson says, my God, he's gutsy. I could never do that. That I, I sure hope or I think that's personal style. But when you're asking the customer, what's this worth to you? Or how, not the, the crass, what it's worth to you, but we solve this problem within your business. How much are you spending on this problem in your business every year? And how much do you think? And I think we could reduce it by 40%. What if we reduced it only 25%? How much is that worth? That's a gutsy question in the eyes of the new salesperson. But that is the coin of the realm, reducing your your uniqueness to forming value in the customer's mind. Because value only exists in your customer's mind. And you only get it to exist in the customer's mind by forcing them to quantify in dollars what's going on in their business. And so that question forces them to connect your solution to their problem to the level of detail where they have to quantify it in dollars. So now you've caused value to form in your customer's mind. Value only exists there. The value in the salesperson's mind is not value. On that note, let's end. I think this has been incredibly insightful. I'd love to have you back because I think we can kick the arse out of quite a few more issues. I'm Um, sure we could. (laughs) Excellent. Mark, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back in time and whisper in the ear of the idiot Mark, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you give him that he'd have probably have ignored? It really is all about understanding the other guy's world and making them successful. Hallelujah. Couldn't agree more. And that's that's not just true in business. That's true in personal life, in in, in politics, in everything. It's the key to a happy life is just paying attention to the people around the around you and figuring out what's going to make them happy because nine times out of 10 that can make you happy absolutely so that leads on to uh, a much bigger discussion about collaboration and cooperation but we don't have time for it at the moment so that could be the subject of our next one what would you recommend people read apart from obviously radical value there are a couple great books um i've actually Richard Thaler, famous behavioral economist, wrote Misbehaving, which is the history of behavioral economics. Behavioral economics is the difference between theoretical economics and what really happens in the real world. (laughs) And so uh, I'm a huge student of consumer behavior, real consumer behavior, what really happens in the customer's mind and the, the stupid stuff that people do the shortcuts, the mental shortcuts we take is described in Misbehaving. Great book. I would strongly recommend anyone who is genuinely interested in understanding customers and customer value follow Colin Shaw. He does the best blog on customer service, uh, customer success on the planet and phenomenal content. Regular. uh, Yeah, S-H-A-W. Absolutely stunning. So how can people get hold of you, Mark? If you're just afraid to talk to me, um, you can certainly email me at mark 
at boundyconsulting.com. Boundy is B-O-U-N-D-Y consulting.com. If you're afraid to do that, just go ahead and stalk me on LinkedIn, Mark Boundy, or stalk me even more surreptitiously by buying my book, Radical Value. Uh, You'll get a lot about what I think. It will only cost you $10 on Kindle. And uh, then that might give you the courage or curiosity to reach out one of the other ways. Mark Bandy, thank you. Marcus, thank you. I really appreciate it. Great conversation. Loved every minute of it. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, insightful, then please go back, take more notes, tag somebody who would benefit from it. And if you feel the urge, then like, comment and share and do subscribe. If you want to get hold of me, direct message me on LinkedIn or marcus at laughs-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.